Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we discuss the greatest and latest books written by or about women, and this is our pilot episode. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty excited. We're we've been talking about this. It. We've been talking about this forever. Yes. So it is about time. Uh, and we love reading about women. So, so we were like, why not make a podcast? It sounds like a good plan. So we did. And here we are. Here we are. Um, first, we're going to indulge my news addiction, I think. Um, I wouldn't know anything about book news without you. I, I, I don't know. You find, you find a lot of other articles. Well, not as many as you. So I don't think it's a competition. No. I just rely on you for all my news. I just quit looking. <laughs> well, you find, I think, a more wider variety of news. And I'm more like, oh, look, here's something that says book in the title. I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's in the news this week? Uh, well, it, we are going up towards the Bailey's Prize, which was formerly known as the Orange Prize. And it is the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, and it will be announced on June 8th. And they have released their shortlist. Um, I'm not familiar with a lot of the authors or their books on here, but I do, um, know Hanya Yanagahara's A Little Life, because that's... Everybody's reading everywhere. that right now. And everyone's crying. Oh my goodness. And pretty much putting Kleenexes people through college and braces and so, so many tears. I, I don't know. I have, I'm still on the fence about whether or not I'm going to read it. I, I can't. It has every single trigger that I have is in that book. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I don't. I can't. I can't do like seven to nine hundred pages of crying. And that was really the only book that I had recognized on the list too. Except I was just browsing at my local bookstore the other day and saw the Portable Vivlin by Elizabeth McKenzie, and it seems like it seems like it's in the same strain as like. Um, the portable James Joyce or like, like it's Veblen apparently is an economist. So mm. I was excited to see that. I've not read it. It has yet, a squirrel on the cover. That's, that's all I know. And I know it's like on the online library for the public library here. That's, I, that's why I love browsing my local bookstore though. I see so many things that I'm like, Oh, that one missed my radar. Yeah. I, no, there's there's that, and but I mean, you can also go on Litzy and just look at books from your couch. That is true. Like, and then people put Snapchat filters on a little life on the cover, and like, those are so hysterical. <laughs> those are my, I love, I love seeing this. And then they're putting like all these disclaimers, like, you know, we acknowledge this is a very hard book, but look at this. <laughs> <laughs> I love book nerds. They're wonderful people. Yes. Yes. We've we found our kind, I think. So any any bets on who's gonna win? I I mean I want Hanya Yanagahara to win just because she's gotten so much press and done yes. such a good job and not won anything. I'm so shocked. I know. So I, I kind of want her to win just because she hasn't won anything. I uh it uh she's been nominated for uh, the Man Booker Prize, uh, the Bailey's Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal. She was also nominated uh, and was a finalist for the National Book Award. And uh, she, I think she did win the Kirkus Prize for fiction. 
That's what it says. She was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee. Oh, okay. And a Waterstones Book of the Year nominee. So Man, you would if they put all those seals on the cover, you wouldn't even be able to see the cover. <laughs> it's like it's like Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. <laughs> Just needs a solid cover with all of her awards. I'm pretty sure that's why they left like the edges kind of blank of, of important things so that they could fit all the stickers because you knew that book was going to be amazing. <laughs> I can't really think of anything in the immediate future that's going to be happening. We're kind of in that lull when we're heading into fall when all the big name books are going to be released for the awards season coming up like in the latter half of the year. So, um yeah, summer is kind of like when everyone takes a vacation and gets their beach reads out and sits down with like the nest or something. I still need to pick my beach. One? Just one? Just one. I'm trying to limit myself to one. Well, why do you have to, like, when do you need self-control with reading? Like, it's it's good for you. Well, you've seen my two read stack. It's huge. Yeah. But one book in a week is not bad. <laughs> wait, wait, is that, is that what you're saying your average is? Oh, not include. Does that include like audiobooks and stuff? Uh, that yeah, that's probably about my average, and it does include audiobooks, which totally count. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. They do. They do count. Well, I guess now is time to get to the main part of our podcast, where we discuss books around this month's theme, which is the books that inspired us to study more books by or about women, where there are strong female characters and women that we admire. And we each have chosen two books, and we're going to talk about those. And we hope that you will go and take a look at them, and then we'll be discussing two of them later this month in the second part of this month's theme-centered podcast. And if you want, you can go read those and then come back for more, Kendra and Autumn, because I know you love us already. But we have tried to pick the ones that represent us. And it was really hard to decide which books to talk about today. It was so hard to narrow it down. It was. And we, we kind of cheated. We did kind of cheat. <laughs> we couldn't pick just one, so we picked two each. Do you want to start us out? Sure. The book that I picked is... So I picked two books. One is a nonfiction and the other one is a fiction and so the first book that I picked is Mystery and Manners by Flannery O'Connor. Have you read this one? I actually haven't read this one. Okay. So I feel shame. Feel much shame. I do. This book is actually a collection of I guess essays. Some of them are like transcripts from lectures she gave at various universities. And it basically in it she just basically outlines what it means to be a writer and a women a woman or a female writer in the south so normally like in the south like women are very like put together and she's saying that she's more realistic yes so a good example of kind of her perspective on women in the south is um, Flannery had lupus, and so her mother told her one time, why don't you write nice stories like Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind? And <laughs> so Flannery hated that. So she kind of, she hated like this over-stylized, like really feminine kind of mm, like pushover kind of female. southern woman. <laughs> 
and pushover is not quite the right word, but like shallow, I guess. Yeah, we, we've all, most of us have seen Gone with the Wind. Yes. I think we know what you're talking about. Yes. And so for me, like, I grew up in the South, and so I saw a lot of the stereotypical Southern woman, and I never really identified with that. In reading her work, it really helped me to see, this book specifically helped me to see how she was an excellent thinker and a deep thinker. And it was really inspiring to see like, hey, I can be a woman and also a thinker. So she's basically getting rid of the stereotype that women are not deep. Right. That they are these shallow southern bells. Exactly. And if you read, like, not in, she shows this more in her short stories than in this book specifically. This book is more like her treatise on what it means to be a writer and how to write and her perspectives on, like, life and where her stories come from. But in her stories, especially I'm thinking of Revelation, she really makes fun of or shows how foolish the stereotypical Southern woman is who's like, you know, I go to church and I help the poor and, you know, I'm a really good person because I'm nice to that that person. Um, but in the end, those people are shown to be, like, they don't have a clue. Like, they think they know what's going on, but, like, they don't really know what's going on. So she was really big on critiquing the culture around her. She was. Um, she Her stories are being are often cited as being, like, dark and grotesque. But, I mean, if you you think about how fraught the history of the South is, she really takes a long, hard look at it and says, okay, what's really going on below the surface of our Southern hospitality and our niceties that we have on the street? So, so one of the things that I always struggle with, with I'm, I'm not from the South, and I really struggle with that fake veneer that a lot of people have, like you have to be nice. And where I come from, you're very blunt and real. And I'm always like, I'm so confused. I say something blunt and I'm not in line. And I, I kind of like what you're saying. It sounds like she is trying to get rid of that veneer and be like, this is actually real. Oh, this is what we're oh, really definitely. like. I mean, she has... She has no tolerance for people who behave one way on the surface and their heart is something different. That's, I would say that's what most of her stories are about, are about people who behave one way and are actually another way. So, Because like, she had lupus and, you know, I imagine she had to just, you know, sit around and observe a lot. And it's very difficult to keep that veneer if you don't feel well. So do you think that really influenced like her writing on that? I think so. And I think that her illness also gave an intensity to her stories. Like she knew she didn't have a long life ahead of her. So I think that she really, she didn't play around. She just like wrote what she felt like was most important. And she even has a story called The Displaced Persons, which is about, she actually had, her family actually had um, immigrants from, I think it was Poland. I don't know. It was definitely like Eastern Europe come and live on their farm. And she has a story about that critiquing these Southerners who don't welcome outsiders. It's really, so like she really had her finger on the pulse of what was going on or what does go on in the South. And so every time 
I read her nonfiction and her fiction, I always come away with this greater realization of the culture that I live in and like how to interpret that and assimilate that. That's, I think it's interesting because a lot of writers critique um, an opposing culture, but she was actually more focused on critiquing and eventually bettering her own. Right. And I, I, mean, she, I really like that. She has one essay in this collection about, and it's, it's talking specifically about Southern writers. And she says that she can't, you can't really, like if you write about general places, that it's not as impactful as writing about specific places. And so, I mean, we've all heard like, write what you know, but people still try to make it more universal. So by be, becoming like really specific, I, I mean, I think that's part of the reason her work has endured for so long is because she really wrote about what she was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. You know, and I know she, she's a Christian, she's a Christian and I know there's been some critique among the Christian, Christian community that when a Christian critiques, you know, their own Christian culture, that you're actually giving outsiders a negative view of Christianity. But I think that Christianity needs to critique itself because we always need to better ourselves. And that includes Christians. Oh, definitely. I mean, she has, so another essay in this book is about, you know, the Christian writer in the South. And, you know, she makes it very clear that, that from her perspective, because of her faith, she is able to critique people of faith. And she calls the South Christ haunted, which is true. And I think that's a beautiful way to describe it it because everyone has a grandfather who is a Baptist preacher or something like that. So she, she really, but she's able to cut through that and say, okay, sure. You may do lip service to being a Christian, but is your behavior really following any moral code of any kind? And the answer is often no. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. I, I'm going to have to go and pick up her stuff now because it's just shameful. I mean, and if you, and if you've not read her short stories, I, people oftentimes I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I was so confused. I had no clue what she was doing in her stories. It was just so weird, which is true. But if you understand what she believed and her perspective, which she really goes into detail in this book, it really illuminates her stories and helps you go, oh, that's what that means, or that's what she was trying to do. So I highly recommend reading this book as a way to interpret her short stories or as an introduction to her short stories, or if you just want to read about a Christian writer writing about the South. You'll never have to worry about me being able to handle weird I don't worry about you. Oh, yes. <laughs> the others. The others listening. <laughs> you know, I just watched The Fifth Wave, and they talk about the others, which are the aliens invading. So now every time I, I think of the others, it's like, oh, they're coming to suck our brains or something. See, you're yeah. braver than I. Like, I read Flannery, but I don't read, I don't watch stuff like, oh, yeah, it wasn't, I don't know if I could handle it. Well, this isn't exactly a, a movie uh, you know, review show, but it wasn't, it wasn't that great. I would suggest reading the book probably. I haven't read the book, but I've heard that it's better. So usually it's. The, the book is usually better. Than usually. Me. There are some exceptions, but we'll, we'll, another day. Gotta save some for later. Another day. Save it for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so my my equivalent of Flannery is Virginia Woolf. And she is, besides Neil Gaiman, who is my living favorite, she is my true love. And um, I also picked for the first, her creative nonfiction work, A Room of One's Own, which is very similar, I think, to Mystery and Manners in um, her reflection on life. Um, she, Virginia Woolf, um, was from the UK and she came from a middle, upper middle class family. And so she was a bit classist. So that aside, um, she's amazing, amazing writer. She is stream of consciousness all the way. And she has a more feminine version, rather James Joyce is very masculine uh, in his take on it, but she's, oh, it's beautiful. And she does this creative nonfiction, which is one of the first works of creative nonfiction. Wow. Yes. And it's, it's beautiful. And so she does it in different sections. And the whole point is that a woman needs a place of her own and to be able to create art. And then she goes into create art. You also need like education and independence and to be treated like a human being. And she really pulls out that feminism is that and women are equally human. And at the time, you have to remember, like when she grew up, um, women couldn't vote. Um, and then once they could vote, you have to be over a certain age. And Now, could women at this time go to school? Like, I refresh my memory. Like, when did she live or when did she write um, this book? She, she was born in the late 1800s, so like okay. 1880, 1890s, something like that. And so she couldn't go to school for a few reasons, um, but she couldn't go to university. Like there were, I imagine, finishing schools, but very few women could go to school. And so she had a tutor, but she was always so angry that her brothers got education and a formal education and she didn't. And she's very, very intelligent. She taught a lot of herself. She, you know, her dad bemoaned the fact she was a girl because she was so smart. Um, and I read her biography by her nephew, Quentin Bell, um, Virginia's sister, Vanessa's son. And it was just so sad because she was so smart and she had so much potential. And that's really where this um, book comes from. Uh, it was originally a series of lectures and she kind of, you know, fleshed it out. Um, and she is also very a pro man. Like she says that both genders are needed to balance out. Uh, humanity because you know on the opposite end you know the gender spectrum there you have two extremes and you need you need a balance with life and she says that there would be a lot less war if women were allowed to say in government and and so on so it's funny because like she's almost a prophet in the sense that I feel like there have been studies coming out recently that are proving those exact statements yeah I think she's really quite correct in a lot of ways. She's not very intersectional at all, but at the time she was very, um, more radical, more radical thought. She wasn't an extreme feminist and she actually was not for, she did not join the first wave feminist movement because she didn't, she didn't like it very much. Why? Like, what does she have? The biography was pretty vague, but she just didn't want to be associated with it. Um, and at the time you remember, um, it was a lot of lower class women and they were being like imprisoned and force fed with like, like the, the tubes, you know, they stick down your nose. And, and so I wouldn't have wanted to do that if I were her either. Cause, um, once she lived in a very liberal circle and she could pretty much do whatever she wanted anyway. So I always, vote, I always think of her when I go 
to the library because there's that one scene early in the book when she's not when she's in the college campus and she's not allowed in the buildings and oh man like what would I do without libraries I always thought how she portrayed the different um universities was so interesting because she did a big thing on food and she was showing the differences in the quality of food and it sort of like was the quality of education like parallel with that it was it was so cool and Shakespeare's sister um I was I always will always remember when I first read this I was actually I used to get up at like um I think it was six or seven in the morning to go to the gym and I would run to the gym when no one else was up and I had my Kindle with me and I sat it on the thing and I read Shakespeare's sister and I just wanted to cry in the middle of the gym in the morning because the idea that if Shakespeare basically had been born a woman, we wouldn't have any of these amazing plays. It's so tragic to think about. Yeah, and, and when you apply that to all the other disciplines, like we've lost a lot of amazing discoveries that we could have had because we treated women like they were just like baby makers. I feel like a good companion book to this one is one I'm reading now, which is All the Single Ladies. And I believe... I love that book. Oh, I know. Uh, I love that book so much. <laughs> if, if you're interested in the correlation between in women's independence and societal agency, definitely read All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traster. Yes. Oh my the the chapter the history on on that the second chapter I think oh I'm my so mad I started reading it to like my husband like it was last rites I I've mandated that my husband read it he promises promises me that he will but like I had no idea like and I think part of the reason that I think it's important that we still talk about feminism is you know, in Virginia Woolf, she was campaigning for education and voting rights. And people think now, oh, well, women have that, you know, peace out, go on your way, quit complaining. But it's so like, it, it's so ingrained in our culture. And I had no idea, you know, that it wasn't until like this 1970s that women could get easily get loans on their own or buy houses on their own. So I think that these foundational books are important to remind us like, why we still need to be championing this cause. Yeah, I was I was talking to, to a girl and she was tell us telling her about sexism in the workplace and I don't remember what example I was giving her. Someone where they didn't, you know, they were treated pretty pretty pathetically by some older man and she looked at me seriously and was like, I didn't know stuff like that still happened. And I'm like, <laughs> do men I wonder like do men still exist? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and oh my goodness. I can it's so ingrained. It is. And we just, if we aren't surrounded by ourselves or if we've just accepted the environment that we live in, you're never going to notice it. So take off your glasses. Exactly. So our next book is a fiction book. So we've done nonfiction and now we're moving to fiction. And I couldn't pick one book. <laughs> so you picked a series. I picked a series. Over 100 books. <laughs> well, but... Only recently have I realized how influential the series was in my life. And so the series is actually the Nancy Drew series. And that might be a shock to a lot of people. But I was thinking about, okay, so a little bit of backstory. So during <laughs> high school, I read all 180-something books in the original series. 
Um, it's a lot our, of books. <laughs> it is. I get them in stacks of 20 from the library. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They probably thought you were a freak. They did, they did. I'm sure they did. But it was right at the beginning of the era where you could reserve books online. So I would oh, just like cool. go down the list and reserve stacks of them. So, you know, since Nancy Drew was written in like the mid-1900s, mid to late 1900s, you wouldn't really think that it was that feminist because that's the June Cleaver era. Mm-hmm. And actually some of the books were ghostwritten by men. Not the first ones. The first ones were written by a woman, but the, some of the later ones, I believe, were written by men. That's but, weird. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy to think about. It. And from a technical standpoint, it's amazing how consistent the books are overall. Um, takes mad skills. So, There's a paper topic there. Somewhere. You can write it. I'll let you have it. <laughs> it's your Nancy Drew. Yeah, well, so Nancy, I think she really made me a feminist in a lot of ways because I remember when, like, so she had a car, right, which is a big deal because as Virginia Woolf talks about and Rebecca Traster talks about, you know, having mobility is a huge deal for women, you know, so I wanted a car, like, as soon as possible, like, when I graduated from high school, but she also has like so many, so many other things in the series. If you take it on the whole, like she was brave and she explored other cultures and she emphasized knowledge. She was always learning and researching and finding out about new places and things. And, you know, she had a, a group of women around her who supported her and encouraged her to you know travel and solve these mysteries. And, it seemed like anything she set her mind to do, like she was able to do it. And as a young kid or teenager going through high school, trying to figure out what you want to do in your life, that's a big deal. Yeah. I hadn't really, I mean, I've only read the first one, but I hadn't really thought of how in the 19, what, 50s and 60s. I mean, that's like Mad Men era. I can't imagine a girl you know, running around with a car, solving well, mysteries during that era. Yeah, and she didn't have a mother. So her mother had died. Oh. So she didn't have this female protector in her life. And her dad was a lawyer, and he basically let her do whatever she wanted. She was like, Dad, I'm going to go fight these criminals. And he's like, be safe, see you at dinner. You know, so... <laughs> Like, it's like a guy letting the boxcar children live on their own I know. because they missed it. What? But so you can see how these themes were like super impactful. Also, I mean, she does have a boyfriend in the book, Ned, dear old Ned. Um, but her world did not revolve around him. He would pop up occasionally, but it wasn't like, oh, I can't go catch bad guys because I have a date this week. You know, it was like, sorry, Ned, I have somewhere to be. You deal, and we'll catch up later. (laughs) My goodness. So, I mean, does she ever get married? I mean, there's a hundred and some books. Does she ever go, like, age? Uh, Nope. I mean, she, she transcends, like, as it gets into, like, the late 90s and 80s and 2000s, she changes but she still stays in this, like, I guess it would be, she doesn't ever get older than, like, her mid-20s. So that's kind of amazing, too, is, like, 
most women's series, I was listening to something the other day and I don't remember what, but most women's series, like TV shows culminate in a wedding. Now that's just ridiculous. Oh yeah. I mean, weddings are cool, but they all don't have to end that way. Exactly. And so this there, she doesn't get married and her friends don't get married. So if you think about it, especially when these first came out, that's super revolutionary. Now, isn't there a new series about Nancy Drew as an adult coming out? Yes. Is it CBS? I don't really know any of the details, but I do know they chose a woman of color to play Nancy. And I believe the woman is of Persian descent. Did you hear that? I believe so. The The information so far is pretty scant. Whatever the case may be, I'm glad they're doing it because we really need an updated version of Nancy Drew. Yeah, I'm wondering how it's going to work with her being on the police force. Like, I don't know how that's going to work because she always did her own thing but had a good relationship with the police force, so I don't know. Well, she was a teenager. Right. True. So... I'll be interested to see what they do with it. I will definitely be watching. Oh, yeah. Um, So while Autumn was reading Mysteries, I was the fantasy girl. I was a pretty big nerd. And my dad liked fantasy. Um, I guess that's where I got it. I always loved magic and mythology and and fairy tales. So I liked Tamara Pierce. I've been mispronouncing it most of my life, so it's a new thing. Tamara Pierce. And she, she wrote about two different uh, worlds. And it's a high fantasy, which means it's set in a different world than our own. And she, it was like a medieval kind of thing. And the first series is about Alana the lioness and she and her brother swatch, switch, swatch, switch places. There we go. And so Alana can study to be a knight and her brother can study magic. Now at the time that this is set in this fake world uh, women aren't allowed to be knights but they used to be allowed to be knights so she goes through the entire process of becoming a knight um, as a fake boy interesting it is very interesting and naturally you have situational comedy like you know when to become a knight like you have to have a bath right and you have other knights like watching you and holding your stuff so she had to find out who would do that for her and um, a lot of other things you can imagine or not imagine. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying not to give too many spoilers, but it gets pretty funny. Um, and then she, she uh, Tamara stays in the same world and she writes about different types of women. So it's not just the super like tomboyish. She writes about another one who can transform into any animal and she's more girly. Um, and you have Alana's daughter, who is a spy mistressy kind of whatever. So they're know. set in the same world, but are they in yeah. the same time period, the two series? The two worlds are different, and then they're series within each world. Oh, okay. Yes, it's going to get confusing. So her middle reader is a circle of magic, and those are in quartets, and so are Tortal. And Tortal is... Um, like Alana, you have Kel, who is the first lady knight to be trained, known as a woman with no magic. Um, and, you know, and those are in quartets and they kind of are in chronological order. So each, you're with each character for four books. And then once that girl reaches, like, um, when she comes of age, basically you switch characters. Okay. So that's to cool. a new girl that kind of starts over in a different area of the world so you see more of the mythology built and you also can see where the older characters have gone in their later life is it set in a world what kind of time period like is it the like 
the giver or is it older than that? It's like, it's medieval fantasy kind of idea. Um, She did write a prequel, which is Becca Cooper, which is, um, I don't want to give a spoiler, but it's a person's um, great, 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 great something grandmother. And she's basically like a police officer in the lower city, like 200 years before Alana um, was born. That's the only prequel. The rest are really in order, the going forward. So then how did these series make you want to become a feminist or encourage you in that way? I mean, just seeing that she, I mean, she's a girl and she's doing all the stuff. And I always wanted to be a boy because I wanted to do boy things. But then I realized, you know, my brother was lying and girls could actually do those things. Uh, which made the world a better place in my mind. And so I really love seeing uh, all these girls. She always focuses on girls and fantasy, and they could do whatever they wanted, you know, like what their the talents and gifts that they had been given, they could use and, and be just as good as the boys. And that was really helpful um, in my mind because... I was old, my brother was always like harping, you know, the fact he was a boy and I was a girl and, you know. So this is the opposite of Lord of the Rings, which is a boys club. Yeah. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. And it's also kind of snobby, you know, like, um, it's very academic. I mean, you know, Tolkien Wait, was. the Lord of the Rings is snobby? Yeah. Yeah. It's very academic and I'm, people don't hate me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, it, it is like, it's all, and it's not all boys club. It's very academic and it's very well done, but I wanted something more down, you know, down to home. Yeah. More relatable. It is. You should try them sometime. I know they're kind of out of your wheelhouse. I know, but that's another reason why I should read them because they are out of my wheelhouse. And of course we will have links to all of the books that we've talked about and vaguely referenced in our show notes, so if you want to add them to your to-read list, you can find all those titles in one place. Yes, because we know that all book nerds have an obsession with adding to their to-be-read list. I keep meaning to, like, clean out my Goodreads, but that will never happen. <laughs> yeah, it's more like I, it, Goodreads is there for me to enjoy. And if I want to have, like, 2,000 books on my TBR, you know, that's my choice. That is your prerogative. <laughs> yes. You be you. Yeah, I tried to make my litzy like very like I'm actually going to read these books, but that's kind of gone out the window. <laughs> that's then, okay. Like, and then like you you can't search it yet, and so like you're always scrolling through like where is that book I wanted to read? Um, but one day. So what new books are coming up? First, we have Homegoing by Jan Ngosi. Forgive the pronunciation, but it's about two half-sisters that never have the chance to meet, but one is sold as a slave to America and one stays in Ghana, and you follow generations of that family to the present, and it is just fantastic. I love this book. Number one rec, probably the month. After that is Vinegar Girl by Ann Tyler. I'm really excited about this one. Have you read Ann Tyler? No, but I'm excited about the premise of the book. Yes, uh, which is that it's The Taming of the Shrew, retold and the Hogarth press or whatever is retelling a bunch of Shakespeare plays and having different award-winning authors write the book. So like Margaret Atwood is writing Hagseed. Um, do you know what play that is retelling? I do not. Oh, it's The Tempest. That's right. The Tempest. The Tempest. Okay. So I haven't read any of them yet. I have two of them. I have Vinegar Girl and Shylock, which it, 
Shylock is my name, I think, which we all know yes. is the Merchant of Venice. Thank you, thank you. I see, I see the play in my head. Like, <laughs> and do I not feel? <laughs> anyway, so Vinegar Girl is by Ann Tyler, who wrote uh, the Spool of Boo thread, which is recently shortlisted for, I believe, the Man Booker, um, and she's won various other prizes. And so that's supposed to be really good. And that's also for my reads for June. So that will be soon. Um, So if you want to wait until we review those or just go and explore on your own, that's awesome. But those are the books uh, by or about women that we're going to be reading in the next month or so. In addition to all the others we will be reading. Yes. Yes. And check out Litzy because I post more books on Litzy than anywhere else because it's Litzy. It's amazing. It is. It's just a perfect segue to say that this is the end of our show. It is. We've made it to the I, end of our first show. I think that's, we should deserve chocolate or something. Or cake or both. Oh, chocolate cake. If you want to find us outside of this podcast, we are both on Twitter and we are also on Litzy and we are on Instagram and Goodreads. If you want to find us there, we post what we're reading and just general random observations about life. And we and will news. have and news. <laughs> and you can find links to all these things on our website, which is readingwomenpodcast.tumblr.com. And we will see you again in a couple weeks. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.